0: Father, we come into your hallowed presence this morning in the name of your Son, that matchless name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he fulfilled all that was written of him by the prophets, and that after living a life of perfect obedience to both your law and your will, all the way to his death, he could cry out in a triumphant victory shout, It is finished. And as we turn to look at that victory cry this morning, as well as his other dying words, which were so very appropriately a prayer to you, we ask that your spirit would move in and among us to accomplish the molding and the refining work that each of us need so that we're conformed into the image of your beloved son. May nothing interfere with or hinder the spirit from having complete liberty with our spirit so we can receive both individually and corporately, collectively here today, everything that you want to impart to us for our edification. We ask that our time together will honor your son both by our words and our thoughts. Our desire, Father, is for everything to magnify Jesus and him alone. So I ask that you would dismiss from our minds the cares of the world, the busyness of our lives, the responsibilities we each bear, so that we are only filled with Jesus and can worship him in spirit and in truth. May the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I ask that you would bless the effort of those who have come today by filling them with an even stronger love for you and a renewed sense of joy and delight in your person and your power to fulfill your plans and your purposes and your prophecies lighten our loads refresh us in the green pastures of your of your scripture satisfy us with the rich meat of your holy word so that we are even more motivated to honor and praise and love and serve you with more fervency than ever especially as we since the day of Christ approaching. And we do ask all these things in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. The Lord hung on the cross a total of how many hours? Six hours. Six is the number of man, and he hung there because he was dying for man. Right? Six hours before he gave up his spirit in death. Those six hours, as we mentioned last time, were divided in two halves. Three hours of natural sunlight from 9 to noon, and three hours of supernatural darkness from noon to 3 p.m. Since Jewish days began at 6 in the morning, noon would be the sixth hour. Remember I said there's a lot of sixes in the whole crucifixion event. So at noon, which was the sixth hour, the separation of Christ from his father began. This is when he literally became the curse of sin for you and I, and also appropriate because it was the sixth hour. So at the sixth hour on the Passover day, a supernatural darkness suddenly came upon the land. Now, if the one dying was who he claimed to be, and who did he claim to be? The son of God, the eternal living son of God. So if he was who he claimed to be, then don't you think we would expect some wonderful things to happen? Things beyond human explanation as he literally bore the sins of the world? You would expect that. Miracles were prevalent throughout his life. So as he's coming to do the one main thing he came to do, to seek and save that which was lost, you would think that it would be accompanied with miracles. And we are not disappointed in that. There were supernatural events to distinguish him and his unique work of redemption. The first one was a very significant special spiritual miracle. We looked at it last time. I call it a, um, a, um, a spiritual miracle because it actually was the greatest miracle of all. A changed heart when the penitent thief came to believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's the greatest because he was saved for all eternity, right? The darkness only lasted three hours. The earthquake probably only lasted a few minutes, the rent veil. But this man was changed for eternity, wasn't he? So that was a very special creative, I mean, not creative, but a conversion miracle. Let's call it a Calvary conversion miracle. There's going to be another one, and we'll look at that today. At the end, who else gets saved? A Roman centurion. And of course, that penitent thief, he, um, he's a picture of all of us. You have it on your handout at the bottom, how many ways he pictures us. Because really, we're all thieves, aren't we? Because we all rob God of the glory he is due. Um, and we all stand condemned to pay the um, penalty for our sins, which is death. And we all must come to the realization that there is absolutely nothing we can do with our hands or our feet. It's almost like we're nailed to a cross. There's nothing we can do to earn our own salvation. Just like the penitent thief, we just simply need to call out to Christ, right? To ask him to save us. Well, besides the miracle of the conversion of the penitent thief, there were five Calvary creative miracles, so there were five creative miracles, there were two conversion miracles. Only one of the five creative miracles took place before Christ's death, and it was that strange and eerie darkness that began exactly at noon. Three of the creative miracles occurred simultaneously, right in a row, boom, 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 the moment of his death, and they were the rending of the thick, huge temple veil from top to bottom, an earthquake, and also very selective and precise damage that the earthquake caused, which was the renting of certain select graves, like tombstones tombstones there in in Jerusalem. The earthquakes rent some of those stones in half, just like the temple veil was rent. Actually the same word is used for both rendings, or rentings, whichever word is correct. And uh, then the next miracle happened after Christ's death, which was the conversion of the Roman centurion who said, truly this was the son of God. And then another one happened three days later after Christ's resurrection. Remember, he was the first one to resurrect. He is the first fruit of the resurrection. On um, Easter Sunday, I don't like Easter. Resurrection Sunday. He rose from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, the strangest thing happened. But people came out of those rent tombstones, those graves and were seen of many, and we'll be talking about that. So those are the, six, the seven miracles that accompanied uh, the crucifixion and the seven sayings. So of these five creative non-salvation miracles, we now discuss the only one that took place during the Lord's time on the cross, which was that three-hour noonday darkness. It was not an eclipse of the sun. You will read, Bible commentators, liberal ones who try to explain away everything supernatural in the scripture, and they will say, well, it was just an eclipse of the sun. I am sorry to tell them, not really, but it couldn't have been because the Passover is always on a full moon. You cannot have an eclipse of the sun when there's a full moon. Impossible. That would have even been a greater miracle. Neither was it the cause of a sandstorm. Now, that's a really ridiculous excuse, but that's what some will say. Oh, there was a sandstorm. Well, this, The crucifixion didn't take place out in the desert. And if there was a lot of sand, somebody would have talked about it, and I don't think a sandstorm would have made it as dark as it was that you probably couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. Anyway, this was a miracle of God. And, but besides that, you know, a, an eclipse of the sun only lasts about two and a half minutes how long was this eerie darkness? Three hours. It's also interesting to discover that we also have extra biblical historical records that confirm the darkness, this strange darkness at the time of the Lord's crucifixion. Not only does the scripture tell us about it, but extra biblical means outside of the Bible, we have historical records that there was such a Such a darkness at the time of the crucifixion. One comes from one of the early church fathers, uh, early church leader named Tertullian. How many have heard of him? Tertullian, there's a great picture of him. He was the one who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, a very famous saying. He wrote, this is interesting, he wrote, and we have these, okay? These are actually in existence. We have letters from him that, uh, and one was, He wrote letters to some of his unbelieving acquaintances about a very unusual darkness on the day of Christ's death. And he told his acquaintances that they could actually go to their own local library and look up because this record of this unusual darkness on crucifixion Passover's day is in their own annals. Their historical books; they could look it up for themselves. Then another early church leader named Origen. He wrote a statement um, about that was made by a Roman historian, who likewise mentioned the strange darkness on Crucifixion Day. Then there was another man, a Greek named Dionysius, who was actually living in the land of Egypt on the day Christ was crucified. Now the darkness is expanding, isn't it? Was the darkness just over Skull Hill? Was it just over Jerusalem? Was it maybe just over Judea? Or just the land of Israel? Or could it have been over the whole world? I don't know. But Dionysius was in Egypt on that day. He was not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. He became one later on, but he wrote about that darkness, and he said this, Either the God of nature is suffering, or the machine of this world is tumbling in ruins. Then, there is also a document from Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate the governor of Judea at the time of the crucifixion. And his letter was written to Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor of the whole Roman Empire at that time. And he assumed, Pilate assumed that Caesar knew about the widespread darkness on that same day. Now, where did Caesar live? Rome. And he even mentioned that the darkness lasted from 12 noon to 3 p.m. Now, that's just a few. There are other extra-biblical sources that confirm this darkness on, resurre- on uh, crucifixion Passover day. I was going to say the day of the week. I think it was on Thursday, but <clears throat> that's another story. All right, the time of day of this darkness, when the sun is at its zenith, at noon, right, the length of it, the fact that it was three hours long, what was taking place during it, God was atoning for the sins of the whole world, and what then occurred in rapid succession right after the darkness lifted and the sun came back out, there were those three miracles right in a row, all of these things emphasize the miraculous nature of that darkness. Have you ever thought about how scripture draws an interesting comparison, oops, I'm gonna go back, um, between the sky at the time of Christ's birth and the sky at the time of his death? That keeps you awake at night. You're thinking about that, aren't you? (laughs) If you never thought about it before, I'm gonna make you think about it today, okay? In that very familiar Luke chapter 2 passage about the um, the Lord's birth, we are told about shepherds who were in the fields near Bethlehem keeping watch over their flocks by what? By what time? By night. That's Luke 2.8. And then suddenly, suddenly, the natural darkness of the nighttime sky lit up with the blazing new... Like, like as if the, you know, it was noon, blazing noonday sun. As an angel appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. So you know, there they are tending to their flocks, middle of the night, and all of a sudden, the whole sky li- lights up. That sudden brightness of the nighttime sky would not have been as noticeable to those Bethlehem shepherds if it took place at noon, right? If they were tending to their shepherds and all of a sudden an angel came, well, it wouldn't be quite so noticeable as it was at night. Well, the supernatural testimony of the sky when Christ was born happened in reverse when he died. From God's perspective, what were the reasons for the crucifixion darkness? Some have suggested that it was a divine picture of how the natural creation was sympathizing with its creator as he was suffering and dying. Others have suggested that it was designed by God to stop the mouths of all the critics at the foot of the cross, those who were reviling Christ and blaspheming him and mocking him and tempting him to come down off of that cross. And that certainly worked. Because it did stop their mouths, that sudden darkness. Um, That darkness struck terror in them, apparently, because we don't hear a word out of them from 12 noon to 3 p.m. Nothing is recorded in the scripture about anything that they said. But, unfortunately, like Pharaoh of Egypt, after the plague of darkness ended in Egypt, what did Pharaoh do? After each plague... He hardened his heart even further, didn't he? And evidently that's what happened with all the critics of Jesus after the supernatural happened. They were still just as hardened about him, if not more, as they were at the beginning. Well, others suggest that the darkness was just another demonstration to prove Christ was indeed the true Lamb of God, that that three hours of unnatural blackout over the land on Passover day would remind the Jewish people who were very familiar with their Old Testament scripture, would remind them of the ninth plague on Egypt, which lasted for how many, three hours or longer? Three days, a whole three days. That darkness. Remember, it was dark over the land of Egypt. There was only one place where there was light. You see, that one place that was Goshen. <laughs> that would be neat to see, right? Just a little beam of light over Goshen, which is where the Hebrews, the Israelites, lived. But that that um, that darkness lasted three days, and it preceded. It was the ninth plague, so it came right before the tenth plague, which was the death of all the firstborns. Um, the Passover darkness at Calvary seemingly was God's divine announcement that his firstborn and his beloved son was giving his life so that the angel of death would pass over all who are covered by the shed blood of Of him, he is the once-for-all Passover lamb. So it was taking the people's minds back to the original Passover. You see that darkness? Also, the darkness represented God's wrath and his judgment against sin. There's going to be another great darkness that will, this time I know for sure, it will cover the whole world, and it will be during the Great Tribulation. You can read about it in Revelation Utter darkness is the absence of God's presence. That's why hell is a place of absolute darkness, because God isn't present there, is he? And God is light, so without God's presence, there is no light. God is truth. Without his presence, there is no truth. God is love. Without his presence, there is no... I mean, you know, you don't want to spend eternity without God and all that he is. That's why hell is dark. And so this was, this was probably um, symbolizing his, uh, his wrath and judgment against sin. Since Christ was experiencing this judgment on behalf of you and I, on behalf of all sinners, it was more than just physical darkness in that sky. It was representing spiritual darkness. It was the result of the separation of Christ the first time in eternity from God the Father. Not only did the darkness cover the land, there's also a darkness in the gospel record because the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, absolutely say nothing about those three hours. Nothing. So there's darkness in the gospel record. The Lord had spoken three times before the darkness, and he speaks four times After the darkness, but nothing at all during the darkness. Are any of the seven cross sayings spoken during the darkness? No. No. In fact, nothing is recorded about anybody saying anything during that time. The entire three hours are divinely shrouded as God the Father broke fellowship, For the first time ever with God the Son. Who hung on a tree. Literally becoming the curse of sin for us. Represented by that brazen serpent. Lifted up in the wilderness. The serpent represents the curse of sin. That's what Jesus became for us. Everything he hates. It was like he was the serpent. Becoming the curse of sin for us. And it was not right. For mere human eyes. To look on the agony of pure holiness. Jesus was holiness personified. It was not right for man to look on him becoming sin for us and experiencing the penalty of eternal hell. So that's why I believe a person couldn't even see their hand in front of their face in that darkness. Well, at the ninth hour, the darkness ended just as suddenly as it began. Can you imagine if all of a sudden everything just went black? I mean, it's a dark day today, but can you imagine if all of a sudden it was night? And I couldn't see you, and you couldn't see me? For three hours, we'd sit here, <laughs> and then all of a sudden it lifted, and it's again, you know, well, it's three in, the, 3 in the afternoon. That's still pretty bright, isn't it? So just as soon as it started, it ended. Um, and I lost my place, okay? Okay, and and as soon as it ended, a cry, a cry that pierced the austere three hours of dark silence was like a crackling rifle shot. Have you ever heard a rifle go off? Near to? My husband does that sometimes and just oh, scares our dog, you know, she goes running in. But it's loud. It's loud. And all of a sudden, that darkness, and everybody was quiet during the darkness. And then all of a sudden, and that, that cry comes from who? From the man on the middle cross. Uh, he cried out in a loud, I mean, the Greek word is loud, very loud, piercing voice. And what did he say? Well, he said it in a Hebrew-tinged Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sarbachthani, which means, you all know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That came straight from Psalm 22.1. Every one of his seven sayings on the cross fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy. And I have that on your handout sheet. But here again, he's fulfilling... Psalm 22, verse 1 starts out with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, sometimes in the interest of trying to safeguard the relationship between the members of the Holy Trinity, there are some Bible teachers who will try to explain away what was taking place here when God was forsaken by God and uh, they do this because it's almost impossible for you and I with our finite minds it's almost impossible to comprehend how God could be forsaken by God if you can wrap your mind around that let me know and explain it to me but it's just you know very hard to understand and yet and so they'll try to change things and say well that isn't what and a lot of people will use this to say well see Jesus really wasn't God because God forsook him and you know there's all kinds of things out there don't believe them this is exactly what Christ was saying the incarnate son of God was indeed forsaken of his heavenly father and this was not only prophesied in Psalm 22 1 but it was absolutely absolutely necessary for our redemption. We would not be saved today if he had not been forsaken by his father. You see, in order to provide salvation for all the descendants of Adam's race, which includes everyone in this room, by satisfying the justice of holy God, Jesus had to pay The penalty for sin in full. Now, you remember when Adam and Eve first sinned? You weren't there. I wasn't there. We're not quite that old. But you remember, according to the written record, when they first sinned, what had God said, first of all? He had said, the day ye eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ye shall surely what? Die. Did they die right then? Did they, like Ananias and Sapphira, did they just keel over? No, but they did die, didn't they? How did they die? They died spiritually, yes. They were separated from their fellowship with God. They did instantly die spiritually. Then later on, of course, they would die physically. Jesus had to pay the full penalty for sin, which includes includes both aspects of death spiritual and physical. He not only had to die physically, bodily, but he had to die spiritually which means he had to be separated from his fellowship with God. You know, Jesus was made in the likeness of man, right? That means he had a body, he had a soul, and he had a spirit. His body died, his spirit, his soul also had, his spirit had to die as well, and spiritual death. Now, from the four gospel accounts, we know... We know that he did die physically. There's no doubt about that. Um, but how would we know or how do we know that he also suffered spiritually? How do, how do we know he also died spiritually? How do we know? And that, how do we have confidence in the fact that he did truly pay the wages for our sin in full? That he died physically and he died spiritually. How do we know? Well, we know because of his fourth and middle saying on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out those words for our benefit. He was so selfless on the cross. Everything he did was for others, not for himself. He, he cried that out. So it's for our understanding. So we would have confidence in his full payment for our sins. Never since the creation of man were there three hours of such dark, deep, mysterious suffering. No one ever suffered like the Son of God suffered. And we'll talk a little more about that later. And yet at the same time, never were there three such Hours that made such an eternal difference for literally millions and millions of humans, right? Because of those three hours, six hours on the cross and the three where he was separated from his father, that determined our eternal destiny. I hope for everyone in this room, I hope you're all born again. And if not, make sure you settle that today. One thing you don't want to do is when you die physically, you don't want to also be dead spiritually. Kind <laughs> of make sure that you're born again before you die physically. Do you think that Jesus? Um, do you think that Jesus asked that fourth saying from the cross because he needed to know the answer? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was waiting for an answer. Do you think he needed to know the answer to that question? Of course not. As just stated, he, had, he asked it so that you and I and every reader of scripture would realize that he did suffer spiritual death. In truth, you know what? He had already answered that question a thousand years earlier. If you go to Psalm 22.1, uh, you read this question, and uh, it was, of course, an amazing pro- prophetic, that whole psalm is a prophetic foreview of Christ's sufferings on the cross and it opens with that middle saying and then it asks another question right after my God my God why hast thou forsaken me we have the question uh, why art those that I can't sorry why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring that's what Christ is thinking and asking God on the cross those two questions But then, if you look at verse 2 of Psalm 22, there is this mysterious um, talk about a period of of light which is followed by a period of darkness. Isn't that interesting? It talks about daytime and then nighttime, all at the same time that the, the Christ is asking these questions. And then, if you go on and look at the next verse, he actually answers his own questions. Instead of crying out over the injustice of his situation, he suddenly acknowledges, this is the pre-incarnate Christ speaking through David, all of a sudden he acknowledges God's righteousness and holiness in forsaking him by saying, but thou art holy. And that is in verse 3 of Psalm 22. So he answers his own question. You see, the pre-incarnate Christ, that means before he became a man, was speaking through the inspired pen of David, and he was saying that he knew exactly why God the Father had to forsake him and why God the Father did not reach out to help him while he would be hanging on the cross. And why is it? What's the answer? because you are holy. God's holy nature could do nothing less than judge sin. If he didn't judge sin, would he be holy? Is a God is a judge. Is a judge who doesn't judge sin properly a just judge? We have a lot of not <laughs> judge, just right righteously just judges today. I mean, they let sometimes they let the criminals off so easy, let them right out of the prisons. It's just sickening, isn't it? They're not just judges, but holy God is a just judge, so he must penalize sin. And even though it was placed on his son, he had to turn. He, he turned, yeah, there it is. He loved Christ as his son, But he had to turn from him as our sin and for our salvation. And yet this does not mean that Jesus ever ceased to be the eternal son of God. On the cross, even during the three hours of forsakenness, he never ceased to be God, eternal son. Now let me ask you something. When you chasten your child or your grandchild or whatever, when you chasten one that you love, does that mean that he suddenly ceases to be your child? Of course not. So although the Lord Jesus knew the answer to his own question, he had to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not only to fulfill that messianic prophecy of Psalm 22:1, 1, but to let mankind know that he did die physically and he did die spiritually. Did you know that the only time Jesus did not refer to his father as father, the only time is here, the only time that he ever called him God was during this cry from the cross. The fourth and central cross saying also tells us that although forsaken of his father on the cross, Jesus held on to him as his God. He said, my God, my God. He was God's servant doing God's work of redemption. And even though it took him into the dark forsakenness of hell for us, yet God was still his God. It'd be like if somebody could go through hell for eternity and come out the other end and got and still trust God, still believe in God. That's what he did. His faith did not waver. One bit. On the cross, you see, the Lord Jesus in his humanity had nothing to rest upon except God's promises, God's covenants and promises. And his cry was really a manifestation of his faith. It was not a cry of distress. it, I mean, of uh, distrust. It... (laughs) Let me say that again. How did I? It's not a cry of distress. One more time, Catherine. It is a cry of distress, but not a cry of distrust. There, I got it right. Okay? God had withdrawn from him, but his sinless human soul still cleaved to his God. His faith was triumphant. Even after three hours of eternal separation, he cries out, my God, my God. Do you get that? That's amazing faith. And this is like looking at his human. He's 100% human, and he's 100% God. His humanity still trusted completely in his God. It's a good thing when you're about to die to have confidence in the promises of God, isn't it? Now, I'm sure maybe there is somebody here who is wondering how, you know, since Jesus was only separated from God, the Father, for three hours, how that could be the equivalent of being eternally separated from him. Because when unbelievers die, they have to be eternally separated from God, don't they? So how was Jesus eternally separated from God, his Father, in just three hours? Well, the answer... (laughs) If you think I'm going to give you a definitive answer, (laughs) you're on the wrong track there. But somehow the answer mysteriously lies in the fact that uh, Jesus, as a member of the triune Godhead, is eternal life. You know, it tells us in 1 John 5.20 that he is eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. So once you receive Jesus, you know what? You have eternal life right then and there because you've just received eternal life. He is eternal life. In fact, he is the source of all life, isn't he? The source of all life is in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So somehow for eternal life to be cut off from eternal life is the equivalent of eternal eternity. <laughs> uh, and that's regardless of the time factor so whether that cutoff of eternal life from eternal life lasts for a second or if it lasts three hours or a zillion years, it's the equivalent of eternal life. That's my great explanation to you. <laughs> God's outside of time, you see so um, so time is not a factor. So for him to be cut off from eternal life, it's, it's just like eternity. And also also if you if you. Um, Consider the mind-boggling truth that the Lord literally took upon himself every vile, heinous sin that has ever been committed throughout human history from Adam and Eve all the way to the end of the Great Tribulation and even into the Millennial Kingdom because there will still be people that will sin in the Millennial Kingdom. Every sin, I mean it would be enough if he just died for my sins. Or just everybody's in this room. But think about all the pedophiles, all the crimes, all the murders, all the bad guys like Hitler and Stalin and the the Nebuchadnezzars and the Putins and all the horrible people of this world. A man is desperately wicked, depraved nature. I mean, all the pride and the jealousies and the covetousness and ah, the gossip. I mean, you could go on and on. All the everything he hates... He became that. Pure holiness became all that for us. When you take all that into consideration, uh, you can understand how three hours for the one who is eternal life, who is absolute pure holiness personified, to be under the guilt and the shame of all of that collectively would be the equivalent of eternal hell. So let's move on now to the next saying, which was, just consisted of two words, I thirst. And this, for this, let's look at John 19. This is thirst, a purposeful cry. Did I tell you what the other one was when I started? It was called forsakenness, um, a purposeful cry. This one is thirst, a prophetic closure. Those are my subtitles. So John 19, let's look at verses 28 and 29. This is the fifth cross saying and it occurs as soon as the darkness ends. And Jesus says, it says after this, after this means after the darkness, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled saith what? I thirst. It's beautiful to realize How those two small words, probably one word in the Greek, I thirst, spell out both the deity and the humanity of Christ. You see, the words I thirst evidence his humanity. He was, just like you and I, he was thirsty. Yet the reason he spoke those two words evidences his deity. Why did he say I thirst? It tells us in the verse. What does it say? So that scripture might be fulfilled. You see, knowing that all things were now accomplished, the Lord knew, I mean, his mind is magnificent. That's why he didn't take that potion to numb his mind at the beginning, right? He needed to be alert, and his omniscient mind knew <laughs> that, that there was yet one Old Testament messianic prophecy. You know what I mean when I say messianic prophecy? Something referring to the coming Messiah. There was one that yet needed to be fulfilled before he could dismiss his spirit. And in Psalm 69, verse 21, again, we have the pre-incarnate Christ speaking through the pen of David. And that verse says... They gave me also gall for my meat. And that occurred when he was being nailed to the cross. They offered him that cheap vinegar wine mixed with gall or mixed with myrrh. It was actually like a narcotic kind of thing to put him in la-la land. So it wouldn't hurt so much. It still would be horrible, but it wouldn't be quite as bad. And what did he do when that was offered? He refused it. He wanted a clear mind. He didn't want anybody to give the excuse, well, of course, he was so calm because he was drugged. He refused that, but if you look at the end of that verse, it says, "Uh, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to, to drink. Well, the second half of that verse had not yet occurred. It was not yet fulfilled. The sedative mixture he had refused had not been given to him because he was thirsty. So we find that his mind, even after six hours of horrendous physical pain, three of them spent in the deep anguish of spiritual separation from his father, which was the worst pain for him, way worse than the physical pain, was the separation from his father. But we find after all of that, his mind is still crystal clear. He is able to go mentally through the scripture. After all, why wouldn't he be able to? He's the author of it, isn't he? Author and finisher of scripture. He wrote it all. But he is able to go through his mind like a computer and check off, boom, 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 every messianic scripture. And uh, that to be fulfilled before his death, Um, And he realizes, of course, that there's one yet remaining. And that is the one regarding his thirst and being given the vinegar to drink. So here's the checklist that he might have gone through, and his would have been more complete than this, but I'm just gonna race through this really quickly. Uh, he, He was betrayed by a familiar friend. Who was that? Judas, Psalm 41, 9. And the betrayal was for thirty pieces of silver. That was a fulfillment of Zechariah eleven twelve. His disciples had all forsaken him, hadn't they? Zechariah thirteen seven. He was falsely accused. Psalm thirty five eleven. He was hated without a cause. Psalm sixty nine four. He remained silent before his judges as a lamb led to the slaughter. Isaiah fifty three seven. He was declared guiltless. Over and over again, Isaiah 53, 9, he was crucified. He was lifted up while his hands and feet were pierced, Psalm 22:16. He made intercession for the transgressors, Isaiah 30, uh, 53, 12. He was also numbered with transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12. He had uh, gloriously seen the travail of his soul, his spiritual seed, who was the penitent thief. While he was actually in the very process of offering his soul for sin, that was in Isaiah 53:10 and 11. And if you miss the salvation of the penitent thief, you got to get the message because that's—he saw the travail of his soul. He was in—he died in giving uh, labor, you know, labor pains. He died giving birth to a. The penitent thief it was exciting to study that he was also mocked by his enemies who were they the religious rulers who spoke against him this is interesting you know as those uh, chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and all the religious rulers were mocking him as he's hanging on the cross you if you look at what they're saying to him they are exactly the words of Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8. they didn't know it but they're actually fulfilling scripture proving that he is the true Messiah. Um, It it says that, of course, the spectators would mock him, exactly as Psalm 109, verse 25 predicted. His garments were divided, weren't they? And his special vesture was even, they they cast lots for it, and that was... um, in fulfillment of Psalm twenty two eighteen. We talked about that last time. He was sunk in the deep mire that Psalm sixty-nine two talks about, as he was forsaken by God, and he cried out to him in his distress, Psalm twenty two one. So all that and that there's more, but all that remained was for the Lord to be given vinegar to drink. I don't know what that, I may get to that in a minute. Yeah, I do. <laughs> all, all that needed was for him to be given vinegar to drink, and then he would be able to yield his spirit into the hands of his father, Psalm 31.5. Beyond the grave, he would even make sure that certain prophecies about the coming Messiah were fulfilled. That takes God to do, Right. Beyond the grave, after he dismissed his spirit, he would see to it that not one of his bones was broken, because that was that had to be according to Psalm 34:20. Not a bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. Um, he would make sure that he was buried in a rich man's tomb, according to Isaiah 53:9. He would be the true Messiah, would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Did that happen? Who was that man? Joseph of Arimathea, and when you read about him, the first word about Joseph is that he was rich. To show you, he was the fulfillment of that. And then, of course, what did he do three days and three nights later? Just as he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up, he rose from the dead. So, in full possession of his faculties, and with his memory unaffected by the physical, spiritual, emotional, social, mental anguish, Jesus said, I thirst. And why did he say it? So that the scripture might be fulfilled, knowing that he would then, as soon as he said, I thirst, he would then be offered that vinegar with no gall in it, no myrrh in it, and it would be just one more you know, proof that he is totally, was totally in control of all the circumstances of the entire crucifixion. No one else was in control. They were fulfilling prophecy and didn't even know it. They were doing Satan's bidding. Who was the one in control throughout the whole thing? Not the Romans, not the Jews, not the spectators, not the thieves on the cross, not Mary and that little crowd. Jesus was in control. The fifth cross saying is the only time, only time that the Lord made any comment at all about his physical suffering. And there are revelations for us to glean behind the declaration of his thirst. And one of them is that it tells us his physical sufferings were real. We might not have known that otherwise. We might not have known that he felt any pain at all. His composure was so absolute. Did he scream when they were nailing the those long nails into him? Did he ever complain one word? So we might not have known, you know, he's just so calm and composed and he's always in control and he prays so selflessly and his mind is so alert. In fact, he was even able to expel enough breath to shout very loudly even after 6 hours of agony. My God, my God. Why has he forsaken me? A loud voice. And again, he'll do it when he cries out, it is finished. So we might never have known that his pain was genuine. We might think, or others might think, and write it in their little commentaries, that, um, <laughs> that somehow God the Father had minimized his son's pain. That somehow he softened his sufferings with some kind of divine insulation so that even though he was bruised and he did bleed, yet maybe he didn't feel the pain. Maybe he was immune from feeling actual physical pain. So besides fulfilling messianic scripture, you know, that he would be given the vinegar in his thirst, besides fulfilling that, those two words, I thirst, are a testimony to the world of the reality of his physical suffering. He was indeed our high priest who can empathize with the feelings of our, of our infirmities. When you're sick, when you're coughing like cherry is out there, can he understand? Has he felt physical pain? Oh, yeah, like none of us could even begin to imagine. So the thirst of Christ was an aspect of his suffering That was also foretold, Psalm 22, 15. Remember I said, you know, we don't read about anything other than his thirst in the gospel records, but we know a lot about what was going on as he's dying for the sins of the world from the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. Well, in Psalm 20, we keep going back to Psalm 22, but in Psalm 22, 15, we read some of his thoughts as he's hanging there on the tree. And again, he says through David, my strength is dried up like a potsherd which means that he felt like a clay pot that is broken in pieces and thoroughly dry. That's how, you know, just raging thirst. He also said, my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And he described himself in that psalm as being brought into the dust of death. That's a great description for unbelievable thirst. Normally, we think of the many other physical pains that Christ suffered or any crucifixion victim would suffer, Um, you know, the normal pains. Of course, he, he also encountered all that mockery, you know, the slapping of his face, uh, the even the, the pulling out of his beard, the spitting in his face, the, the dreadful scourging that he went through, that crown of thorns into his head. And then they even, you know, they mocked him. They put on a, a red uh, robe and said, you know, you're the king of the Jews. They put the crown on him and then they gave him a reed, you know, like here's your scepter. And remember they took that reed and they beat his head with it. So they're they're beating those long thorns even further down into his scalp. You think about the long iron nails that were seven to nine inches long that went through his wrists and his feet. But how often do we think about the raging thirst of crucifixion victims? With the loss of blood, the fever, the fever that would accompany um, all the stress put on the body and on on the vital organs, Um, with the open wounds to the wrists and to the feet, and of course the open wounds all over his back because of the scourging, the elevated heartbeat, the great exertion just to breathe, and then you've got all that combined with the blazing sun that's coming down. Maybe that was another reason for the darkness, to help ease all the blazing sun coming down on the crucifixion victims. Do you ever think about the insects? They say the insects that would go around and they'd go into the ears and the nose and if you open your mouth, they'd fly in and they smelled the blood and they said even sometimes birds would alight on them and be pecking. While they're still alive, it's just awful to think about that. But all of that combined brings on a raging thirst. But the Lord's thirst was not just the result of all his physical sufferings. It was also the result of the spiritual conflict through which he had just passed. See, the minute the darkness lifted, what's the first thing he said? I thirst. Well, he said, my God, my God, and then he said, I thirst. It was the after effect of the agony of his soul as he experienced an eternity's worth of God's wrath against sin. So it represents spiritual thirst. He just suffered a compacted eternity of the separation and the darkness and the agony and the torture and the thirst. That is hell. So the greatest suffering at Calvary was what he endured spiritually as our substitute sin bearer. His physical pains were excruciating. Remember I told you that's where the word excruciating comes from, crucifixion, excruciating but they weren't unique. He was not the only one to die by crucifixion. By the time of Jesus 30,000 people had been crucified, and after Jesus many more thousand were crucified. They ran out of trees in the area to make crosses. There were so many. So his physical sufferings were not unique. However, his spiritual suffering was completely unique. He alone bore on himself the sins of the world. He endured Hell for all of us, everybody. I do not believe in limited atonement. He died for the sins of the world. That doesn't mean everybody's saved because there's human responsibility. You have to accept his death on your behalf. But he died for everybody. Do you remember that one relief that the rich man in Hades begged of Abraham for? He, he wanted Lazarus. remember this, you know, Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus had been a beggar, and uh, he was in the paradise section of Hades, and the rich man was in the Hades section of Hades, where there's terrible torment and thirst and all these. And what was the one thing he asked for Lazarus to be able to do? Dip, that's why I have that picture, to dip his finger, the tip of his finger in water to cool his parched tongue. That was in Luke 16. Now be sure, be sure you understand this truth. Jesus did not say, I thirst, so that his thirst would be somewhat relieved. He said it, why? I repeat this again. He said it so that Scripture would be fulfilled. His omniscience spoke those words because he knew where he was in the whole crucifixion-related events of the overall redemptive blueprint that was established in eternity past. He was there when they made this plan. He knew exactly where he was in that blueprint, and he knew there was one more messianic prophecy to be fulfilled before he could then make his it is finished statement and commend his spirit to his father so even after suffering hell for us in the very last minutes probably seconds of his earthly life his mind is focused on what the word of God the word of truth it was scripture that filled his thoughts It was scripture that formed his words and occupied his mind and gave joy to his heart and directed his ways. Scripture. Do you know how important this book is? This is what should fill our minds and give joy to our hearts. This is what we should be focused on day and night, the word of God. That's why it's so important to memorize scripture. So that when you're on your deathbed, you can recite scripture, or when you're in a trial or trouble, you can recite scripture, or you can turn to the right passage, and it can just lift you up. He was our example. He was constantly focused on scripture, and we should be too. So what was the one last pre-death prophecy that needed to be fulfilled, and that his words I thirst set, uh, set in motion Going back to 6921, Psalm 6921, it was the words at the end of that verse, in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. When Jesus mentioned his thirst, there was a man in the crowd. This is in Matthew's account. A man in the crowd near the cross who we are told ran. I don't know who this man was, but it says he ran. He was eager to, he didn't know he was fulfilling scripture, did he? You think? But he was. He ran to to meet the Savior's need. Matthew 27, 48. Now, some believe it was one of the Roman soldiers who was assigned to carry out the details of Jesus' crucifixion. But we don't know this for sure. If you read Matthew's account, it doesn't sound like it was one of the Roman soldiers. You usually see that in the pictures, don't you? You see a Roman soldier lifting up the hyssop with a sponge on it. But we don't know that for sure. In Matthew's account, it sounds like it was just a man in the crowd who ran over to, the the Roman soldiers would have had a bucket there of this cheap wine vinegar. They probably kept drinking it throughout the crucifixion. Um, But he ran over, and uh, he had a a hyssop stalk, which grows to, and I looked up about hyssop, here we go. Hyssop um, grew to about 18 inches, the stalk of hyssop, um, 18 inches is a cubit. I'm an exact perfect cubit, by the way. I measured one time, i was so silly. But I took a measuring tape and I measured, it's from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, and I'm exactly 18 inches. So I, can, I'm, I have a built-in cubit measure, you know. And can go <laughs> around measuring in cubits. Uh, but it was about 18 inches tall. So I'm telling you this, because he put the sponge on the end of the hyssop stalk and lifted it to the Lord. And so they say this proves that the Lord would not have been more than his feet would have been two feet off the ground. So when you see pictures of the crucifixion and there the three guys, you know, the two thieves and the are way up high, that's not accurate. Because no hiss they couldn't have reached his mouth from the ground with a with an 18-inch hyssop stalk. So dismiss those pictures. His feet were only two feet off the ground, so easily they could lift it to his his lips. Um, and, and the use of hyssop, does not that also take the reader of Scripture back to the original Passover? Because what was it that God instructed them to use in order to apply the blood of the Passover lambs onto the doorposts of their homes? What were they to apply the blood with? Hyssop. Hyssop, hyssop, uh, so that the angel of death would pass over their home and spare all of the firstborns within that home. So during the Lord's crucifixion, which um, was on the day that the the Jews were celebrating Passover, God used both the eerie three-hour darkness like the ninth plague in Egypt and he used hyssop to help further demonstrate the fact that his son dying on Passover was the true Passover lamb. And it is his blood that needs to be applied to the doorposts of our hearts in order to escape God's judgment on all firstborns. How many of you are a firstborn? Raise your hand. Me too. We would have died. But spiritually speaking... It speaks of anyone who's only born once, physically born. You need to be born twice for the angel of death to pass over you, right? So that you're not just a firstborn, you're a secondborn. You need that spiritual birth. It's interesting, it says in Psalm 51, 7, that we are cleansed with hyssop. It makes us whiter than what? Than snow. Charles Spurgeon pointed out the fact, and this is interesting that the last thing to be brought into contact with the creator before his death was the lowest form of animal life, a sponge. And the point of contact was what? The Lord's lips, the very lips of the one who spoke all things into existence. It says in Colossians 1.16, for by Christ, were all things created. Who is the creator? Not only the redeemer, but who is the creator? Christ, Jesus. So the scene at this moment on the cross was that of the lowest form of life coming into contact with the highest form of life, who is actually the source of all life. You see, when the Lord Jesus originally created the sponge, (laughs) He quenched that little sponge's thirst by placing it into the waters of the newly created earth. Where do you find sponges? Besides your kitchen sink, you know, in the ocean. (laughs) So he quenched that little sponge's thirst by placing him in the water. But on Calvary, that lowly sponge served its creator by quenching his thirst in the dying moments of his earthly life. I say thank you, Charles Spurgeon, for pointing that out, because that just gives me a blessing. Well, after receiving the drink, all the scripture, Messianic scriptures, had been fulfilled to that point, and so Jesus then was able to cry out with, again, a loud voice and say his sixth saying from the cross, which was, in Greek, one word, and what was it? Te telestai. The greatest word to me in all the Bible. It is finished. And that's what we're going to look at after we have our brunch. And it looks like there's plenty of good food to eat. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on on our food, okay? Lord, thank you again for... The word of truth and all you have to teach us in it is just amazing it's overwhelming it's beyond what we can comprehend but we thank you we have a God whose ways and thoughts and truths are way above ours we thank you for all Jesus did now we ask that you would bless our time of fellowship and the food in which we're going to be participating and enjoying And uh, bring us back ready, refreshed to enjoy the second session. For we ask these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.